The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Fast Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, check out this chart. You might not even recognize it because it's been a while, but Bitcoin is surging, heading back to $8,000. So what is behind this major move? Top Bitcoin investor Spencer Bogart of Blockchain Capital will be here, and he'll tell us why today was the start of something big. And later, the CEO of General Electric speaking out at an exclusive dinner last night to CNBC. We'll tell you what he said that has all of Wall Street on edge ahead of its earnings report next week. But first, we start off with the market rally. The Dow surging more than 350 points at the high as the markets shrug off the uncertainties around Syria and a trade war. But tomorrow is the real moment of truth for the markets because it's judgment day for the rally as earnings season gets into overdrive. J.P. Morgan, City, Wells Fargo all on deck to report in the morning. And there are two major questions here. Very simple tonight. Number one. Will earnings results crush Wall Street's expectations? And number two, will earnings drown out all the chaos? The Trump tweets, the trade war, the geopolitical threats surrounding Syria. Guy Adami, right. it's two hard for you, but we got two questions That's you all. need to answer. Can you repeat two. the questions, please? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's a joke. So the okay. first question is, will earnings crush expectations? That's the first question. And I think yes, but I think everybody has said that for the last couple months. Which means expectations, agree. by the way, are this right. high. high. Without question. So, yeah. The second so, question is, will it drown out the chaos? The no. Is it, but the most important question, Which and the one that out? Dan talked about last night, Dan Nathan to my right, what will guidance be? Guidance to me is, will be key. The good news is, in my opinion, the markets held the 2580 level, a level that Steve flagged a couple weeks ago a few times now, and it's bounced off it nicely. So if nothing else, you have something to trade against. Yes, earnings will be very good. It's all about guidance, in my opinion. Yeah, and I'll just say this, is that I think a lot, when you think about the C-level suite and what they're going to be able to articulate going forward, is that all of a sudden now they had a lot of excitement and enthusiasm about potential for capex and maybe some M&A with tax cuts, repatriation, that sort of thing. But now when you think about the geopolitical stuff, you think about the potential for a trade war, and we obviously now that's kind of been tamped down a little bit. There's going to be a bit of uncertainty. There's no reason for any of these guys to get out in front of them. And I just want to say, tomorrow's really important. We're, we're fully expecting good bank earnings. If they can't continue to rally here and break out of this little range, I think that's going to be important. But I think you have to look at the week after next when you're going to start to get Amazon, Microsoft, those sorts of guys. If we can't rally into that now to that, I think I think we really are going to be uh, range-bound for a while. I'm, I'm, but I'm not sure what you're saying. Are, are you telling me that you if think... If they can't rally tomorrow, good earnings that we expect... I think that the market's going to stay below 2,700 in the S&P. And if we can't rally, if FANG can't rally us in two weeks, I think the market's but, done but for you, So bit. you think we, I mean, because what it sounds like is you think we can kind of go sideways until then. Um, by the way, you guys are kind of like peas and carrots over there. What does that even mean? 
just we I'm not, I'm not flying sure. off of each I'm not other. Sure. We, we were you thinking know, either you're, you're made to be together or in anyway. fact you make no sense. And, and what I think makes no sense ultimately is the fact that people think that earnings suddenly are going to squelch down the noise of everything from Syria to Fed to rates to White House to you name it. Um, when in fact those things are trumping everything, and if you tell me they didn't that, trump everything this week, though. But, no, but they but they, they weren't really coming out, and and ultimately the markets were probably way oversold. Now, having said that, I think this is probably the first quarter since pre-crisis, I think in over 10 years, where equity differentials uh, are at a skew from where we are with... Meaning what? Equity differentials. With fundamentals, with earnings right. versus what equity markets did in the first quarter, which were down substantially, and what versus what fundamentals are and what credit is. Yeah, so so I, I'll, I'll start off the way you asked the question. Yes and yes. So I do think that they're going to blow it out of, the, out of the water. I do think it's enough to drown out all the other noise. I think EPS, uh -huh. revenue growth, and, and net, in, uh, net income margins are going to explode, I think, all across the board. So to Dan's point, I agree. It's, I think that the financials will be. I think that financials had a head start. I also think that large cap tech, though, to Dan's point, has to prove something, and I think they will. I think money's going to come back into there. That's the biggest spot of the S&P, and that's why the market will continue to I, I would just say this. I think it's really important to remember that, that Facebook and Amazon, they're damaged now. I mean, they really are damaged. You know, Amazon's still down 10% from its all-time highs. Facebook's down 15%. Amazon more so. I think that Facebook got ahead of it. Right. I think you're better off if you were putting new money to work right now. I agree with you. I think you should buy Facebook. But there's some kinks in the story, and then I just want to add Apple to that. Don't forget that Apple stock sold off 4.5% after What's they left? reported. Well, what, what I'm saying is, is that if the banks can't rally us, right, and we, we, we just, we're going to need something to get us back to the highs, and I don't think it's going to be Q2 guidance that does it. Almost the unfortunate okay. part of earnings season is that the big banks, they skew to the front of earnings season. We've got weeks to go where we got industrials that are going to report, and will it behoove CEOs at this point in time with rising interest rates, with a potentially looming trade war, et cetera, to come out and say, I'm super bullish second quarter. I'm going to raise guidance, unless they're really sure. That was Dan's point last night. Yeah. It's all about it's all about guidance going forward. And, and to, to your point, why would they give great guidance if you have air cover not to? I, I agree with that. And I, and I don't think necessarily that earnings can um, override all the noise we're hearing. I think that's what Tim is saying yeah. as well. Point. But the good news is, if you're a technician, the market did hold those levels that Steve flagged. Well, There's no denying the, that. The only, uh, the, the only pushback I'll say that I think that we could just keep crossing over this, this wall of worry or whatever it is now is that we're looking at an effective tax rate, a corporate tax rate. That's J.P. Morgan's was above 30. It's down to sub-20 or right around 20. We don't even know what those knock-on effects are going to be. Well, there's no way to but, even but we, but analyze we, that. But we, but we have assessed and tried to analyze that for the last three months. Can't. We can't. The last time okay. we had a corporate tax rate. Well, no, I, 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 think, I don't I mean to be confrontational. Living, I'm just saying. Steve, and I think at the bottom line is. Uh, so analysts are always. So analysts are always right. But see, listen to what you just said. Analysts do this for a living. So if you look, if you look the at this, they have to be. For a living, so why, so why are we saying? Why are we saying that? You guys are talking at the same time. Why are we saying that? Are we going to beat expectations? If, if analysts do this for a living, we should just say expectations are reality. Of course, they do this for a living. There's no way you could factor in a 1941. My, my, one, my one pushback, I agree that we do not yet know the full impacts of the corporate tax rate cut, but I don't think we'll know that full impact. 
for another three or four quarters. Well, and we and, won't and, know how that money is really going to be used and how that's going to impact. And, and my point is, is simply that that the market took us through a blow off top on January 26th, which was built on the fact that we have high expectations for it. These guys are going to tell us over the next two to three weeks. So to tell me that it's not going to happen or that it's already, uh, you know, it's a dynamic that we're not going to get, I, I think. It's, I, I think it's, it's also important to remember that the, all this churning down here, down the S&P, down seven, eight, nine percent, I don't think it's particularly bullish. And I think there's a couple tape bombs that are lurking out there. One of them is obviously um, something having to do with Syria. You know, if we actually are doing anything other than drones and Russia were to shoot down one of our planes, we got a big problem. I mean, we got a really big problem. That's one. And then the other one is if you see Rod Rosenstein fired, Mueller fired, you're down 4% like that. Right. And, and, I, and I thought we so, were going to see that Rosenstein. I thought we were going right. to see it this week, actually. I thought we were going to see it because I thought the whole Syria thing was the, the tail wagging the dog type event. And I don't disagree. If we do check those levels again at February low, if we break that, then it's lights out for the market. But to Guy's point, you do have something to shoot against. And I think you look at 2553, which was last week's low. We saw intraday how more. the S&P reacted when we got that headline that, that the, the U.S. Skittish, had eight no. potential targets in Syria. It, we're skittish, we're even at, ahead of earnings season. We're, we're absolutely skittish. And, and if you think about the backdrop here, which is that over the last two days, the market has been largely repaired. Hey, folks, we're, we're only about 400 basis points off of lows where people would be running for the hills. OK, um, we're, we're basically an ad hoc comment uh, on Twitter about the fact that, yeah, you know, Syria, we might, we might not. Right, but um, higher lows. Larry Kudlow is a good friend of, of this network right. and, and a lot of people in the market. But I'm not really sure Larry's the one that's calling the shots. Right, but one last thing. On a technical basis, we've done technical damage. I agree with that. I think we do have to check lower levels. We're not going to do it during earnings season. But we have made a series of higher lows, which in the face of all these tweets, I think that is extremely healthy. Let's go to a technician. That's a great that's a idea. idea. Our board. next guest says two of the banks that report tomorrow are a buy right now. Let's go off the charts with Chris Verone of Strategus Research Partners. Chris, I'm so glad you're here. All these guys citing levels and technical analysis. I don't know what you think of them, but. Well, we have a big couple days in front of us as these banks finally start to report. And what I want to focus on it to begin with is probably the most important stock in the market, certainly the bank sector, uh, J.P. Morgan. Looking back over the last couple of years, every single time, it checked the 200-day moving average. It responded. We saw it in 2016. We saw it in 2017. We think ultimately we see it here in 2018. And what really strikes us, when you look at the pullback last year in the spring of 2017, down 13%, it was actually worse than what we've seen so far this year. So if we take a step back and say, well, what does J.P. Morgan look like relative to the S&P 500? When J.P. corrected late last year, it underperformed. As it corrects this year, the stock actually outperformed. So we still think this is a leadership name. And what's maybe most curious, when we overlay J.P. Morgan versus 10-year yields, this is still the same exact chart. What's been resilient over the last few weeks? 10-year yields right at 285. We think that's bullish for the banks. J.P. Morgan longer term, going back the last 12 years. What strikes us here is when we look at analyst recommendations, the street was very, very bearish on J.P. Morgan at the 08 lows. The street is still very bearish on J.P. Morgan at the 2018 lows. Less than 50% of people who cover the stock have a buy on it. One more name here we like, Wells Fargo. It's been the laggard in the group. But we had a very big climactic low in volume a few weeks ago. The recent low is on less volume. We think that's a positive sign that the stock is getting ready to bottom. And then lastly, what does this mean for the broader S&P? I think importantly, when we look at the big picture here, 
this is pushing up right against the 2675 level. We think ultimately you break out here. It's hard not to like this picture. Three weeks of basing, we think it goes higher. Chris comes over, right? I, think, I don't think there's a question Come on about over, it. Chris. Man, bring him in. Yeah, Ryan will bring the chair in. Sense tonight. Hey guys, <laughs> Thank you, Ryan, for the chair. <laughs> so when you're taking a look at these charts, you also take a look at the 10-year yield chart because sure. I feel like on a day-to-day -day basis, at least, it's basically subject to the whims of the 10-year yield, the direction of financials. Well, let's keep yields in perspective. Uh, September 1st of 2017, 10-year yields were 201. They hit 295 a month ago. They're only off 12, 13 basis points from the highs. The yield market has been very, very resilient. Two-year yields still at 230. Five-year yields right back at the highs. So I think if you're looking to the bond market for some signal on these bank stocks, I think you have to be impressed with what we've seen there over the last several weeks. And we've thrown every piece of news uh, at bonds and yields. They just can't seem to keep them lower. Chris, when I look back, do you, when you look at the XLF, sure. is it too long to go back to the financial crisis? Because I love comparing it sure. to those peak levels in the financial crisis. J.P. Morgan is basically 11.5% of the XLF, so it does you know, swing it around a little bit. But do you look at it through that prism sure. occasionally? We always do. And I think maybe what's been most telling the last month or two as the broader market has come in, this is the first correction for the S&P 500 where bank stocks have outperformed yeah. in two decades. In two decades, you have to go all the way back to the mid-90s to find the last time that happened. That's a sign of strength. I think we should embrace that as earnings approach. <laughs> so, Chris, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about this yeah. churn in the S&P 500. Steve says it's a series of some kind of higher highs, that sort of thing. To me, it just looks like a churn. You may get your breakout, but sure. let me ask you this, and we just used the term tape bomb. If we had a tape bomb that brought us down 100 S&P points back to that support level, does that kind of make it, you know, kind of make it like lights out for a little bit here or what? You know, I don't think so. And there's been a couple interesting developments the last few weeks. I think most importantly, we finally have, spe uh, we have finally seen a spike in put calls. So people are nervous here. Yeah. You have the put call ratio in the 98th percentile of all observations. It's hard to see big crash risk when that's the case. And also, the lows here recently have been on far less volume than the lows in early February. That's common at or near a market low. The sellers get less interested. And we've seen that the last few days. So are we at or near, or have we seen the lows for the year on the S&P 500? I think we're in the ballpark here. We're in the now, ballpark. I want to be mindful That's... that uh, midterm election years, the bulk of the gain is often found in the last couple months of the year. But in terms of have we put the lows in or have we seen the lows, I think we're in the ballpark. You mean here. after the elections then? Uh, you tend to see like, post-September post markets okay. really respond, fourth quarter. Uh, but in terms of have we seen the bulk of this correction, are we through the worst? Are we through the worst? I would right. say yes. All right. Chris, thank you. Thank you. Chris Verone of Strategus. Well, a couple things that Chris said. First of all, J.P. Morgan, like, people that can't even find the yield curve are talking about how flat the yield curve is and banks can't make money. LIBOR's been cranking up. These guys are highly levered to short-term rates. J.P. Morgan was up 45% in 2006 when the yield curve was flat to slightly inverted. So that whole thing is, is garbage. Um, the other dynamic I want to, you know, I, I think the, the reality is if you look at the technicals of the market, um, I, I think we are at least in a difficult place until we get through the next earnings season. I, it, some of the damage, if you look at the 50 cro crossing over the 100, we've gone to kind of this midterm place where I think equities look somewhat challenged. Um, you haven't been on this desk for a while. The last time you were here, you were going on vacation and you sold. So, yeah, about two weeks ago, I sold my major positions. I bought them back. I didn't buy them back in full. I bought them back basically two-thirds of my positions. I bought all of my Alibaba back. I bought two-thirds of my Square back, two-thirds of my uh, Avis budget back. What made you do that? 
because I felt that we're going into, I, I sat here on this desk and I said that the market had to thread the needle for the sell-off before earnings. And I thought it was very difficult for the market to sell off while we're in the middle of earnings because of the tailwind of the corporate tax credit. So you think credit. we're going to be strong Talk. or at least decent for the next I, I think few we're going to have tailwinds, we're going to be strong, and yeah. I think the market is going to move higher from here. Today, what did you do, Guy? Well, casinos had a great day. We've talked about them for a while. Win had a big day. But getting back to J.P. Morgan real quick, and Mike, this has been my point all along. I think... Banks deserve a multiple of about 1.8 price to book. And if you look at J.P. Morgan, last quarter was $67 book value. This quarter will be a little north of 68 bucks. That will come in, and this is $122 stock. So to me, J.P. Morgan works, but it works because of that metric. So, I, you know, we talked about FANG a little bit. I think you want to steer away from that right now. There's a couple old tech names that are acting really well on a relative basis, Intel and Microsoft. And I think you can see both companies actually report good earnings and actually decent guidance. Just given where they are, I think the valuations are pretty reasonable, and I think you're probably going to see these ones make new highs before you see the FANG make new highs. All right, coming up, Disney taking its first major steps, pushing ESPN into the streaming wars with the launch of ESPN+. Plus. But is it just too little too late? We've got all the details. Plus, Bitcoin surging back today after weeks of being stuck in crypto purgatory. But can you trust this rally? We separate the fact from fiction with the top Bitcoin investor. And later, Tim Seymour here stepping on up to the plate with the one stock that has been grounded, but he says is about to soar. And yeah, that's a hint. <laughs> You're watching Fast Money. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Disney in correction territory down more than 14% from its recent highs. But one of its biggest networks just launched something that could give the Mouse House a boost. Julia Borson's breaking it down. Hey, Julia. That's right, Melissa. ESPN Plus is launching today in the U.S. for $5 a month. It's part of a redesigned ESPN app, which also includes free news, scores, and highlights, and then for TV subscribers, access to streaming ESPN. The Plus subscription includes 10,000 live sporting events in the first year, plus original documentaries and exclusive shows, including a new one from Kobe Bryant. ESPN Plus subscribers won't get SportsCenter or any of the games on ESPN or ESPN2 from TV, but they will get 180 MLB and NHL games and thousands of college sporting events. ESPN chief Jimmy Pitaro tells us that this is really just a starting point. This will be a fluid process. We are going to learn. Um, we are going to examine the data daily and make changes both on the product side and also on the content side. Look and see what's working, what's not, what's resonating, what's not. Um, and go out there and try to secure additional rights. Kevin Mayer, who oversees Disney's direct-to-consumer business, says that the subscription service may generate losses for a number of years, but it will be profitable in the not-too-distant future. And ESPN chief Pitaro says he does not expect the new service to cannibalize ESPN's core TV business, but rather to help it compete. We're looking at it as, as giving us some optionality. In an evolving media landscape, um, in a world where things are changing not just monthly but weekly, in fact daily, um, we, we like the fact that, that ESPN Plus will give us that optionality. Cowan analyst Doug Krutz tells us he expects the app's impact initially to be modest, but that it could evolve into a foundation to bring all of ESPN's TV content direct to consumers. Melissa, back over to you. All right, Julia Borson in Washington for us. Thank you. Um, let's try to your shareholder here. What do you think? Yeah, first of all, people get too lost on ESPN and cable when they look at Disney. Studio is crushing it. Parks are crushing it. And just to be clear, Black Panther, I know guys saw this. How many times Three did times. you go see Black at Panther? At least, right? Three times Black Panther for guys. So, look, uh, at the end of the day, Disney is a story that's a much more diversified media story. By the way, 
why isn't ESPN in the DTC business going to be able to compete with the best of them? In other words, the assumption that in a world where everybody's moving in this direction, ESPN can't compete right now. It's complementary to their linear TV. So at the bottom end of the range here, Disney, I don't, you know, at this valuation, it, it to me looks as good as any stock in the Dow. You can't get everything on, on an app or on your phone. And it's cheap. So, I mean, I don't think First people are going to I don't know what the product this. Re really is, though. It's not, it's not a substitution. As you, you were just talking about the linear TV, it's not a real substitution. I'm not really right sure. Now. It's complimentary. I, I don't think that anyone really needs this. I don't think you need to buy this product. I think you I would think... say, do you need Hulu on top of Netflix? Do you no, need I, Amazon no, Prime I, I, on top I, 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 I mean, of Netflix? These problems. are games. These, these are cricket. I mean, is there, is there a huge market for cricket that people have to spend $5 I, I, a month I, to buy? I think the key point is original content. And I think the other key point is optionality. And so think of this as like a beta test. I mean, for all intents and purposes, and they're going to add a lot of stuff to this. So to me, if you're a shareholder in Disney and you think there's going to be an ESPN turnaround, this excites you. It doesn't matter in three months what the numbers are or whatever. If they continue to yeah, innovate I, on this thing, they're going to migrate tons of sports center content eventually on it think about where we are I think that it will cannibalize I don't think they're gonna do that I think if they did that I would get excited about the product oh, I, but I, I, I think, think it would cannibalize their other I think they're dipping their toe in the water they're gonna go down parallel paths I think this is a new mobile world this is an app not for you or me Steve this is for our kids in five years they're and what do you think's in the price so. of the stock I mean people have been beaten on ESPN for so long I mean the reality yeah. is I don't think the expectations are high in the DTC no. meanwhile I don't know why they're not Beta test, that's an interesting notion. I mean, ahead of Disney, core Disney's yeah. direct-to-consumer offering, this could just be a big, grand test to see what sorts of things work and resonate. I'm with Tim on it. I mean, ESPN, I get it. It was a big deal. It was a big deal two years ago, and unless they right. launch the Ocho sometime soon, I know the that's Ocho? sort of lost on you. Chad Ocho not lost on... No, 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 the Ocho. You I, remember in dodgeball? The, I mean, the Ocho? I, I mean, no, that's, really, that's, that's the... Anyway, your point the being... I think valuation is, they traded 13 times forward earnings. The rest of the space trades about half of that. Does Disney deserve that kind of multiple premium to the rest of the space? I submit no. I don't think it's going down to 85 bucks. But I think it's dead money at 100. It's down 6%. It's underneath all of its moving averages. The stock is troubled. So it might not be. It might be ESPN started it. I don't know what the, the sickness is. I do believe they're king of content. I do believe the parks the, the are knocking it out of the park. But it's down 6% for a reason year to date. It's the bottom everything. end of a two-year range, guys. And if you look at where the valuation is, it's as cheap as it's traded. So Could be a value trap. A yeah. Value you know. trap with studio, consumer products, theme parks. Are you kidding me? The, all these businesses are on fire. This Here's is a, a question. Game? I like this oh, how'd you know? I just, I'm would you rather? So in your head. Would you rather? Are you going to suck? Would you rather then? If it's in no, 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 my I'm not head. to do that. <laughs> Disney or Netflix? I'm not going to ask oh, this side because it's obvious fine. the way these guys feel. I mean, you know the answer. That's a rhetorical question. You're going to say Netflix. You're going to say Netflix? The most. I'll talk about. I'll talk about all you want. I'll talk about Reed Hastings because Reed Hastings, to me, is the, is the CEO that Bob Iger used to be Amen. and wants to be again. So I'd rather be with Reed Hastings and Netflix into earnings with the growth they're seeing in internationally than Disney with their shot at Hulu to come try to compete and with pricing power. Netflix. Throw that on top. Uh, all right, so, on top. so can I just uh, I'll just end this debate because I think a lot of what you're saying about <laughs> price action is really correct. I mean, right. there's no doubt about it. But I think what you're saying on the fundamentals is correct. Disney was a stock for decades that people bought for their kids and they held on to. When you think about what they're doing on the franchise, when you think about what they're trying to do with BAM Tech on digital, I think Bob Iger is going to get it right. I think he's going to be viewed as one of the most genius CEOs Not of this generation. So... I'm going I think Disney you go Disney. Here wow. Over the Netflix. Here's the other thing. That. Netflix for a long time has traded with a takeover premium. If anything, Netflix is going to be using their overpriced currency to take over somebody in a deal that probably doesn't make sense. Netflix so is Netflix a gross is stock. It's, 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 way, it's way above. It's, move, it's, the, uh, it's the antithesis of everything I said about Disney. It's above. It's 50, so it's 100, it. it's 200. Are you shorting it? 
No, no, but you said Disney are you was sure at the bottom of the range, so you're negative. Are you, you sure? It's the opposite. So, so it doesn't mean that I have to have a play in it. So I'm asking you. So if I, if you ask me, am I buying Netflix, I'm going to ask you, you shorten it. It's up 61% year to date. I'd rather buy Netflix. Thank you. I'll Would you rather? That's the game. Would you rather? That's what we call Would you rather? Exactly. Decisive answers. I said right off the bat, I like that. Thank you. Good job, guys. Gold stars for everybody. Anyway, coming up. General Electric rallying 2% today. We will tell you what the CEO said last night exclusively to CNBC. That's got all of Wall Street excited. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. Tim says one airline stock that's been dead money for the past year is about to take off. And he'll pitch you the name. Plus... Exciting and new. Yep. Bitcoin is surging, and a top hedge fund manager says it's about to moon, and he'll tell us what has him so bullish when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin getting a bid today as a cryptocurrency posts its highest price in two weeks. So what is behind this boom? Our Leslie Pickers at the crypto desk with all the details. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Melissa. Is this the Bitcoin breakout? Bitcoin posting one of its best days of the year, hitting a high of $8,011 on Coinbase this morning before losing some ground. The move pushing all the cryptos higher today, though. Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, and even Ripple were up sharply. So what is behind this sudden move in pushing these current cryptocurrencies higher? Your own Brian Kelly pointing to a short squeeze as tax selling creating a bottoming process. Bitcoin shorts were squeezed out and forced to cover their position. Fundstrat's Tom Lee also pointing to tax selling as a reason behind the recent sell-off. Take a listen to what he had to say earlier today on CNBC's Futures Now. It's overdue. You know, Bitcoin's incredibly oversold. And, you know, when you look at metrics like price to book, which is mining cost, or our Bitcoin misery index, it's pretty much what you saw at the end of the 2014 bear market, not the start. And we, we do think that tax capital gains related selling really accelerated in the past couple of weeks because, you know, tax date's coming up. We still feel pretty confident Bitcoin is a great risk reward, and we think it could reach 25000 by the end of the year. You can find the full interview with Tom Lee right now at futuresnow.com.cnbc.com. So tax selling and potential short selling aside, the top question on every crypto investor's mind right now is this Bitcoin rally for real. Back over to you. All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker. Spencer Bogart is a partner at uh, Blockchain Capital, which invests in a variety of crypto assets. Spencer, it's always great to speak with you. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Do you believe in this bounce that we're seeing? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I'm not totally ready to call the end of a bear market here. I think there could still be some more uh, uh, regulatory shoes to drop. But listen, I do think that the tax selling has been a very real thing, and it has accelerated over the past couple weeks. So I'm not surprised that as we get a little bit closer to tax day, that some of that pressure, that selling pressure, is starting to ease a bit. All right. You know, Spencer, we like to play games on this show, so we thought we'd um, have some fun with you, if you're willing. Um, so we wanted to uh, play a game called Crypto Fact or Fiction. Here are the rules. I'll read you a statement, and you tell me if it's fact or fiction. Got it? Ready? All right. Okay. First up, fact or fiction, tax selling is behind the recent Bitcoin decline. Fact. Absolutely. I think people realized way more taxable gains in, in 2017 than they expected to. And uh, now with crypto prices down 50% from their highs, people have to sell twice as much crypto just to cover those taxes. 
Next up, fact or fiction, Bitcoin will not get back to December highs this year. Hmm, I'm going to have to go with fiction here. Um, I'm not sure that it actually will, but it'd be very easy for, for Bitcoin to get over 19K or 20K, the highs that we saw in December. Uh, it's really not hard for, for a large amount of capital to move into the space and, and push prices up significantly. Lastly, fact or fiction, Bitcoin will be the best performing cryptocurrency this year. I'm going to go with fact here. Uh, I think that there's a lot of a regulatory overhang here, and I think that Bitcoin is the, the, in the safest place out of all the other cryptocurrencies, right? A lot of them have had ICOs, and that has attracted in the SEC as to was it or was it not a securities offering, and, and how are we going to treat these tokens now that they're out in the wild? Um, whereas Bitcoin, I think, is the only one that very cleanly falls on the, on the safe side of, of the SEC. Hey, Spencer, let me push back a little bit on the tax narrative over the last couple months. You know, when you think about it, if you had big gains in 2017 and you actually sold, let's just say, Bitcoin, and now you have this huge sell-off in 2018, you know, the HODL crowd might not sell the asset that's down 60%. <laughs> they may actually sell Amazon or something else that they've owned for a long time. So is that a possibility? We may be looking back a month from now and saying, eh, that was a convenient narrative around April 17th. You know, that very well could be, but, but I do think it's, it's surprising how much uh, taxable gains people have had in 2017. I mean, if we think about the performance of this asset class and some of the various coins, I mean, we've seen some of the coins in 2017 rally a couple hundred, if not a couple thousand percent. And even people that just, for example, maybe were holding ETH at the beginning of the year, Ethereum, if they traded in any of that ETH for an ICO, that was actually a taxable transaction, which some people might not have even realized at the time. And again, maybe at the start of the year, they would have only had to have sold 10% of their portfolio to cover those taxes. Now in a situation where, where markets are down 50, 60%, all of a sudden they have to sell twice as much just to meet those obligations. Hey, Spencer, it's Tim. So the whole discussion about institutional investors coming on board is one of regulators, et cetera. Um, what is your best guess on this timing? Because, you know, this is also one of these pie in the sky. Yeah, the institutions are coming, the institutions are coming. But, you know, there still may not be a lot of room for these guys. I'm just curious on your timetable. You know what? I think trying to guess on regulatory timelines is pretty equivalent to reading tea leaves. Um, if I had to guess, I'd say we'll be really pressed to try and get real strict regulatory clarity before the end of the year. I'd guess that's more likely either the very back half of this year, um, if not more kind of a first half of next year. But, I mean, let's think about overall the situation here. If you're a macro asset manager, you're sitting there looking at a, a situation where central banks are unwinding the biggest experiment in money that we've ever seen at the same time when almost all asset classes are at all-time highs. Meanwhile, you look out of the side of your eye over here and you see this new crypto asset class, which is down 50 to 70 percent from its highs and remains relatively uncorrelated to other assets. If you're a global macro kind of hedge fund manager, I have to think that this asset class is looking increasingly appealing especially every day that goes by when developers are still building on these networks. All right, Spencer, we've got to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. It's always great to speak with you. Spencer Bogart of Blockchain Capital. What we didn't get a chance to talk to Spencer about was this Ripple investment, $25 million of XRP in blockchain capital. I mean, these kinds of funds are getting more and more attention these yeah, days. Yeah, I think that, so it's funny, you know, we've talked about this a lot in BK, this is one of the narratives, that there's this wall of institutional money coming into the space. 
there's just a lot of money. It may not have been flowing into Bitcoin itself this year or some of the other um, crypto assets, but it's going into funds like his. It's going Coinbase just launched well, by their the way, VC have fund. To invest, They're investing a lot there, of projects. I think, but I think there's, you know, there's a danger here that a lot of these funds that are flush with cash have to jump into this market. By the way, a lot of capital was eradicated at the top, which I, I think is going to be at least a sentiment barrier to a lot of people. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on crypto. I'm bullish on the whole space. I mean, a lot, I, of, the, assume, a lot of the investors who invested early on in, in whatever fund, they they lost out and they're disenchanted now. They don't want to go back. What I'm saying in, is that, you know, after the euphoria of December, a lot yeah. of money came in in January right. and that money got faced. A lot of people. But that was retail. Been, and we've seen that time and time again. Other, you know, at risk assets. When you think about where VCs investing, where institutions investing. Okay, but I mean, if markets pull back and I don't. I'm not sure you disagree with me, Dan, but if markets pull back, I disagree with Spencer a little bit, that if markets have this major pullback, you're not going to be running into Bitcoin. I mean, come on, it's not a safety asset class because the rest of the world is blowing up. It's exactly the opposite. Yeah, but so let me ask so, you this. We had a gold discussion last night. We had an analyst talking about gold, and we right. didn't get to it. Would you buy gold and GLD here if you, for the reasons that you would, or would you buy Bitcoin? I mean, it's a no-brainer to me. You know, gold's traded in the I, band. I think he's of, saying that's not the choice, though. That's not the would-you-rather well, that you would pose, gold, gold, right? You, you know how I feel about gold. Gold has underperformed massively in the perfect storm of the last two right. years with the dollar weaker, et cetera. But I don't think institutions and I don't think a lot of investors want to run to the safety of Bitcoin. I think they'd rather run back. the gold. I think what they've seen coming off the tops, and I do believe that crypto is still going to be the future, and I believe the blockchain is going to be the future. But I believe that the volatility we've seen in Bitcoin has actually pushed more people back into gold. See how well Spencer played fact or fiction? He, and he, he, he said, he, I gave facts, him the rules. And then he gave his he reason why. I said, exactly. Have you learned something, young I learned a lot. Brilliant, <laughs> Spencer. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yes. Nice Still ahead. Too. Did you miss out on today's Bitcoin bounce or some of the other big moves in the market? Don't worry, because Guy Adami's got three simple steps to buying in on the way up. He will break it down. Plus, Tim is stepping up to the plate, getting ready to pitch one airline stock he says is about oh. to fly to new heights. So, will the other traders get on board? Find out when he delivers his fast pitch. Much more fast, straight ahead. We had a great first quarter in terms of demand. Record revenues for Delta, up 8% top line. Uh, driven, interestingly, not just on the domestic system, but for the first time in several years internationally. In fact, our international revenues outpaced our domestic revenues in terms of growth. And the transatlantic which was the most encouraging of all, was up 15% in the quarter. So really strong quarter, and it gives us some good momentum going into second quarter. That was Delta CEO Edward Bastian earlier on Squawk Box speaking with our very own Phil LeBeau about Delta's better-than-expected first quarter. And with all the drama in the skies over the past year, the airline stocks have had trouble getting off the ground. And uh, Tim here actually pitched American Airlines back in July. It wasn't his best call. The stock is actually down 10% since that pitch. So, Tim, what's oh, your next move on this? Too bad. Well, certainly, here's, here's my call on airline stocks. They've been phenomenal trading stocks over the last couple of years. And in fact, you've had six moves of plus or minus 20%. A lot of those to the upside. Um, and ultimately, you know, to me, with American, you heard this from Delta today. Uh, the numbers in the sector are phenomenal. And a lot of this is really just about sentiment in the sector overall. All right, so I, time, I there. time to redeem yourself. You got right, another pitch, right? Yeah, let's do this. So um, unfortunately, if I failed on one airline, maybe I run the risk of failing again. But but I'm, I'm going to go with United here, folks. And when it comes down to it, you know, we're in a very interesting place for the airlines. First of all, you know, if we bring up these, these three bullet points here, bottom line is, as I said, right now, sentiment right now is way too low in the sector. If you think about what's going on right now, especially after what United did on their last earnings call, they basically set the bar extremely low. They basically told you capacity could go too quickly. And I think it's going to be a very different story than that. Bottom line here for these guys is earnings 
they always guide and beat, and that's what they're going to do again. Remember, we already kind of got guidance on the first quarter. I think the RASM, which is revenue per available seat miles, is something that's actually, again, going to surprise and beat on the upside. And finally, this multiple is way too low for this economy, folks. Again, we're talking about an economy that's possibly growing, possibly going to have its best growth in four or five years. This stock is trading at 10 times relative to an economy that's probably growing. That's at the bottom end of a historical range. This company trades between 10 and 14. It's trading at the bottom. If they earn 8 bucks a share, this stock is actually very cheap, even at 80 bucks, which is where I think it can go. So if you look at this chart, again, I want to show you the move we've had, the pullback and all this stuff that we've had. But ultimately, this is a level where I think we get to just on a reorganization of the sentiment around the stock. So this is a great multiple story, sector too low, the economy is booming. Don't you want to own transports in this, folks? United is a company, I think, you know, I, th I think the news on this has been not equate with the sentiment. Tim, how much uh, goes into the calculus on the price and direction of oil to your bullishness on the airlines, does it hinge on that? It, it, it's, it's a very important point, Steve. And if you think about uh, earnings on a 10% plus or minus move in energy prices, it's probably a 15% hit to earnings. So there's no question that these guys will be sensitive. And many times, obviously, airlines are sympathetic to the downside on a move in oil. I think there's a lot of hedging out there. I also think that when higher oil prices come around, airlines can charge more. And that's a good thing. All right. No more time. Time to vote. Uh, are you buying or selling Tim's pitch on United? Grasso, what do you say? I'm going to say buy. I like, the, uh, I like the pitch. I do believe that oil is going lower, and I think airlines as a whole are going higher. Let me guess what Dan's going to say. <laughs> I'm say. What are you going to say, sell Dan? this thing. I, I think Tim makes a really good point. I mean, the valuation oh, is always whoa. trading at eight times. Those are some good triangles, but I think you're going to have a shot trophy, to buy Dan. this thing. I don't need the Down trophy. about 10% at 60, which was the recent Come low. Come on. Key. Would rather fly Delta is what that's. It doesn't mean I'd buy or sell. I'd rather fly. I can't get around, my arms around United losing people's dogs, clubbing that poor man as he leaves the airplane. They, didn't, they, they, they dragged him off. They didn't club Very him. Just to good beat it. contrarian indicator. Point of fact. Anyway, all right, one buy, two sells on the desk. But are you out there buying Tim's pitch for United? You can vote right now in our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. We will reveal the results. Uh, right after this. Ooh, Tim, not looking good. Plus, General Electric CEO John Flannery speaking at a CNBC event last night with some interesting words about former GE head Jeff Immelt. We will bring you those exclusive comments when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. General Electric CEO John Flannery speaking out on everything from activist investors to the future of the company at an exclusive CNBC event last night. Let's get to Morgan Brennan back at headquarters with the details. Hi, Morgan. Hey, Melissa. So GE CEO and Chairman John Flannery sharing his vision for the struggling company a year from now. The reality is uh, in one year we have to have proven you know and we have our first report card coming out on April 20th. We have to have proven that we can run the company better and improve the results and get the, the uh, essence of the company to shine. That first report card coming out next Friday with first quarter earnings, but investors are still waiting on more details for the longer-term turnaround plan, including whether a broader breakup is in the cards. Now, Flannery, who's been at the helm for almost nine months, also commenting on his predecessor, Jeff Immelt. You know, I worked for Jeff uh, for you know, directly for the last 10, 12 years. So, you know, the alumni, if you will, have unique perspectives. And I, I still remember calling Jeff shortly after uh, starting the job. He used to always say, hey, every job looks easy until you have to do it. And I remember calling him saying, I, yeah, and I, you know, 
I understand that you know uh, well now. So their perspective is is invaluable to me. Now, this interview coming as investors await restated 2016-2017 earnings thanks to new accounting rules. That's a filing expected to come tomorrow. Meantime, given all of the uncertainty around this company, the stock is down another 25% this year. It's down more than 50% over the past 12 months. Melissa? All right. Thank you very much, Morgan Brennan. So should investors brace for more pain going into earnings next week? Earnings next week, then an investor shareholders meeting, and then an industrial conference in the next month. There are a lot of different events. I, I, I personally think there's more pain to come. Now, you know we're sort of at the lower end of the range, and the stock has been grim death now for the last year, year or so. But I don't – listen, John, the Flannery promised about $20 billion of divestitures by October. I think they're about a quarter of the way there. That's not very good. Why is that? I don't know. Maybe people don't want to buy what GE has well, Maybe for they sale. don't want to sell the stuff I, at the bottom. Well, you know I what? Mean, They've the done that before. They have done that before, and they bought things at the top before. So I get it that it looks compelling on a valuation basis, but you have no earnings growth. I'd rather be in I Honeywell. I came close to actually buying this today. And I think that off you? of his comments, because I, I look at a chart, and it still makes me nauseous to look at this chart. You look at a short-term chart, long-term chart. But when you hear Flannery say that his first report card is coming up next week, there's not a lot of time for investors to forget about Isn't that. Isn't there like a saying about blood feels, in the street that's when you buy feels pretty, or something like that? He sounds like that. pretty I mean, damn good about what's going to happen next week. I, I, I'm actually going to take another look at it tomorrow, and I think I might buy it tomorrow, because I think for him to give himself a short leash like that, I think he feels totally confident. Well, I, first of all, this could be really that chance. Everyone wanted him to totally kitchen sink this thing, and he really hasn't done it yet. Um, the other side of this is, look, Baker Hughes is up 25% off the bottom. These assets that were priced at nothing, I think, are actually increasing in value. I think they're underpriced. And here's something else. If this company earns zero, is it worth zero? So everybody that's doing the multiple thing, they're going to earn a buck, so it's an $11 stock. That does not count the intrinsic assets and the book value of the company. And I still think that the sentiment on this thing is way too low. I know it's going to be a tough turnaround. But I think, the, you know, it's very easy to jump on this one. Is that the calculus that you would use? If, even if they earned zero, would they, they be worth zero because they still have not. assets? Of course it's, No, it's, that's, it's not. But, but I mean, is that even, right even fair, that's what fair they, question to that's ask? What, it but is. It, because people is. are they're only going to earn a buck. And, what, you know, so I'm going to put an 11 multiple on them and call them. It's but $11. what's the right multiple if you have no earnings growth and have basically negative earnings How many companies growth? are like that, though? Well, honey, well there are a lot of companies. But there are other companies in the same space that have managed to do really well. Coca-Cola's not earning anything. Honeywell has crushed it over the... It's effectively effectively the same company. And Honeywell's done everything right. Well, then you have to go some of the parts, then. If if there's no earnings, then you have to go some of the parts. And this has to be worth something. The problem is the market's going to dictate what it's worth. And from right now, the chart looks terrible. Well, as we mentioned, GE is set to report earnings before the bell next Friday. The options market is implying some pretty big moves for the stock. So, Dan, why don't you break it down for us? Yeah, so if you look at the options market and you price it out to next week's close, uh, it's about an 85% uh, 85 cent move in either direction. That's about 6 to 2.5%. Um, you know, this thing has not moved a whole heck of a lot on earnings, partially because we've seen some pre-announcements, we've seen some dividend cuts. That's where a lot of these big gaps have come. But when you think about um, what's just been going on this year, Morgan just said the stock's down 25%. That's not really capitulation. I think what traders like Steve or long-term investors are waiting for a capitulation. So to me, playing next week with defined risk if you're trying to be contrarian makes sense. For more options action, you can check out the full show. That's tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Still ahead, a number of high-flying stocks have been soaring off their recent lows. But if you miss the move, don't worry. Guy here has got three simple steps to chasing a surging stock. He'll break it all down. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin is back. The cryptocurrency soaring more than 10% for one of its best days of the year. But it's not just Bitcoin breaking out. Check out some of the other high flyers kicking it into high gear. Tesla's up more than 20%. Netflix, Caterpillar, NVIDIA, Boeing, all up around 10% from their April low. So if you're feeling a little fear missing out or FOMO, as the kids like to call it, relax. Guy Diamond's got a plan to buy stocks that are going higher in a hurry. It's a segment we like to call the more you know. Guy. Well, thank you, Mel. I appreciate that. And remember, the essence of this show, it's a trading show. So I have my trader cap on, not my investing cap on. Just remember that before you tweet at me. So here are my rules. Have an exit strategy. What does that mean? Tesla, for example, for the longest time I said, if it breaks 280, pull the ripcord. A close above 280, get back in. So know where you're going to get out if you're wrong and know where you're going to get back in if you're right and know where you're taking profits. Number two, don't average down. I know I've heard all about dollar cost averaging. I get it. That's an investing thing. This is a trading thing. I'd rather you buy more on the way up than try to buy it on the way down. Might be wrong. Don't average down when you're trading. Third point, feed off other people's FOMO. If Tesla starts ramping to the upside, use that to your advantage. Buy more on the way up. Know we're going to take profits on the way in the top, and I think you'll be fine. So again, don't average down. Feed off other people's FOMO and have an exit strategy, Mel. Mel, I have a question. Yes, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Ask and the question, by the guy. Way, guy. I don't ever want to feed off of someone's FOMO, whatever that means. Um, but, but look, you're talking about stocks that have also just bounced off of a big tail off. I mean, why aren't you just grabbing a little momentum in, in just in time to, to hit the skids one more time for high-flying stocks that really have more to fall? No, and it could. Listen, Tim, you know it could happen. Uh, Tesla, for example, could go right back through 280, and I'm wrong. But if, for my rules, a close above 280 gets you long the stock again. You trade it against that 280 level, and you look for a move back to 350. If you see right here, we've sort of called that 280 level. You had that brief move below, traded up against it, traded through it. I say you get long the stock, buy more on the way up. Thanks for that, Guy. And Good coming stuff. up next, we will reveal whether you at home are buying Tim's pitch for United. Stay tuned. Welcome back. You know what Tim does when he goes on long flights? He listens to marathon sessions of Tony Braxton's <laughs> I Break My Heart because America so not sad. buying his pitch. Big time, actually. It's a big loss, by the way. You know what? what? Tony's been good to me. And Tony's <laughs> been good to the stock market, by the way. We love Tony. So final, you know what I'm going to do? Final trade. United Airlines. Go buy it. Grasso. Car, Avis Budget. Dan. Uh, Microsoft showing really good relatives. Guy. A big OA tomorrow at 5. Huge. Always you know, big. my favorite choice. I Timo that thing. No, not, don't <laughs> even. Delta Airlines, Melms. I'm Melissa Lee. Thanks so much for watching. See you back here tomorrow again at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.